1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. What does suffering and happiness have to do with each other? What seems to be polar opposites in our rationale, in reality, particularly in Christian theology, are brought together in perfect harmony. In fact, we may even say the bad intensifies the good. The pain accentuates the joy. To say it another way, more specifically, knowing the depths of our sins and the sins around us allows us to grasp the height of God's grace and mercy all the more. Of course, I'm not saying that Christians are people who go seeking suffering. God forbid no one should do that. This life has enough troubles on its own. But Scripture says a lot about embracing suffering and how Christians should respond to suffering. For example, James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How about Romans 5, 3? We rejoice in our sufferings. 2 Corinthians 6, 10 describes we are as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How about Habakkuk 3.17, which says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fails, and the field yields no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Pastor John Piper says, What person in this room, and I think we could all agree, who has lived long enough does not know that the sweetest joys, the deepest joys, are marked with tears and not laughter. Our passage this afternoon teaches us God has a purpose for our suffering. Hence, we as Christians are good sufferers. We're continuing our study through 1 Peter in our series, Hope in a Hostile World, And for the past six weeks, we've been examining how who God is defines who we are. Amidst afflictions and persecutions that tests our faith, Christians persevere because, as Peter exhorts, we are elect exiles, chosen citizens, born again to a living hope en route as pilgrims to God's celestial city. He also tells us we are holy children of God the Father who has been made holy as He is holy, that we are a chosen people set apart for God's own possession, to proclaim the excellencies of Him. That we are submissive to all human institution because we know the one who is sovereign over all. And we are good spouses in order to be witnesses of the preciousness and the power of oneness through marital unity in Christ and also point to the profound mystery of oneness between Christ and the church. From First Peter, I pray it's clear to you that Christians persevere through suffering and trials, mainly not because of what we do, but because who we are in Christ and how that changes everything. Our perspectives, our intentions, our, our interactions with others, the way we live our lives, the way we hope in a world that is hostile to God's truth. Well, this afternoon we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22 which is the conclusion of a larger section which started in 1 Peter 2.11 with the words, Beloved, I urge you, where Peter emphasized how believers should relate to the world in various social orders. 
Believers toward unbelievers, toward earthly authorities. Servants toward masters, believing wives, toward husbands, unbelieving and believing. And husbands to wives. Peter had urged believers scattered all across first century Asia Minor as a loving apostle and a spiritual father and as someone who has experienced deeply God's grace, love, and mercy. And he exhorts them to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his return as according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. And as the last few instructions were somewhat heavy, let's admit, submission is not easy for anyone. It it is heavy. It is difficult. It is hard for us to grasp. Well, Peter, understanding that and knowing that, here in our passage, Peter reminds his hearers the motivation why Christians should be honorable in all relationships, even ones which may seem initially and naturally difficult, even ones in where believers will face persecution and suffering. Now think about that for a second. Is Peter basically telling Christians to live hard and burdensome, perhaps even miserable lives on earth since we have so much to look forward to in heaven? Is that all Peter is saying to us? No. Our passage actually tells us otherwise. Peter in our passage offers believers encouragement in why we as elect exiles should suffer well because... What Christ has done by his death, resurrection, ascension, we are a people who have something that unbelievers don't. We are a people who know something that unbelievers don't. We are a people who possess a certain hope that unbelievers don't. And that means something. So from our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, I want to share with you three reasons why Christians are good sufferers. Here is the outline so you can follow. The blessing of good suffering, from verses 8 through 14. The blessing of good suffering, 8 through 14. The testimony of good suffering, verses 15 through 17. The testimony of good suffering. And point number three, the victory of good suffering, from verses 18 through 22. I pray that if there are any brothers and sisters here this afternoon who need encouragement, somebody say amen if you need encouragement, in your relational hardships, that these words will be a blessing to you. If there is anyone here who is not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. I pray that what you will see in our passage, which are so countercultural in our divided dog-eat-dog, backbiting society, the idea that we should not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but rather, on the contrary, bless our persecutors and our afflictors, I pray that it would cause you to wonder why this is possible. Why such radical notion is central to the Christian faith. I pray ultimately it would point you to the one, Jesus Christ, in whom all of this makes sense. So without further ado, let's read our text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 22. It will be found on page 1015 and 16 of the blue Bibles around you. I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along so you know that I'm preaching from God's Word. If you're new to the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. By the way, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles home with you as a gift from us to help you grow in God's Word. So let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 22 says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, 
For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Why should Christians suffer well? Point number one, the blessing of good suffering from verses 8 through 14. Look with me to verse 8 again. It says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The first observation we can make in our passage is the word finally. This word doesn't mean Peter is concluding the entire letter as we see that the letter goes on for another whole two more chapters. But rather, as previously mentioned, Peter is concluding a section addressing now all Christians, finally all of you, and Peter addresses as general instructions how all Christians should relate to, first, brothers and sisters within the Christian community, that's verse 8, and toward those who are outside the community of faith, toward persecutors and afflictors, that's verse 9. So within and without. And in verse 10 through 12, you'll see the reason why all Christians should behave this way, indicated by the word for in verse 10 and verse 12. And you'll see that Peter uses an Old Testament example quoting King David from Psalm 34 from our scripture reading, which I'll talk about more later. And then you'll see a similar pattern repeated. Internal in verse 15, but in your hearts. And external in verse 16, so that when you are slandered. So again, inside and outside. And then in verses 18 through 22, the reason why. Peter, this time using a New Testament example, the example of Christ, indicated by the word for, for Christ also. If you're looking at your Bible, it makes a lot more sense. Anyways, that is the rough structure of our pericope. So look with me to verse 8 again. Peter encapsulates in summary form with five imperatival adjectives how we ought to relate to one another within the Christian community. Five words, in other words, to capture the heart of what the fellowship of Christians should look like. 
Now, with a bit of careful study, you'll notice Peter uses something called a chiastic structure in verse 8, which is a literary technique to emphasize a certain theme, in this case, the central phrase, brotherly love. So you'll see that the structure is A, B, C. If If this is confusing for you, just follow me for a second. A, B, C. Okay, so unity of mind and humble mind are similar, uh, describing how we ought to think with one another. Sympathy and a tender heart, B, are similar, describing how we ought to feel toward one another. And all of this emphasizes brotherly love. That's the way we ought to think and feel toward one another. Brotherly affection, a familial care and devotion to one another. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in John 13, 35, isn't it? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, the central mark of a Christian community is love within one another. Before we talk about anything else, evangelism, outreach, missions, we ought to be a people who are united in mind, sympathetic, tender-hearted, and humble in mind. I love that Peter emphasizes that again. Okay? What does that mean? Humble in mind, not thinking that you are right all the time, or not being inconsiderate of others, or not being stubborn as a display of our brotherly love toward one another. So a question for each of you before we move on to anything else. Let me ask you, is this true of you? How do you think and feel about other members of this local church body? Are you united in mind with the brothers and sisters of this church? Are you sympathetic and tender-hearted toward each other? Are you humble in mind toward the purposes, the mission, and the covenant of this local church? Is brotherly love a characteristic you possess and display as a member of New Covenant Baptist Church? Because that is the starting point of everything that will follow. How will you be a witness of the gospel if you can't be united with other Christians especially the ones within this very local body? How could you carry out Christ's commission if you are not faithfully covenanted to a body? This is why church membership is so crucial and necessary and biblical for anyone here who are struggling to commit to this church or any other gospel-preaching church, for anyone who has a hard time understanding church membership. Here's God's Word laid out before you. You can't grow as a Christian without commitment to a local church, without submitting yourself to the authority of the local church elders, without the accountability and discipleship of fellow believers. You can't be a Christian without a church body, without unity of mind, without sympathy, without tenderheartedness, a humble mind, and brotherly love. Amen? Members of NCBC, how are you doing this? Perhaps you are experiencing some conflict with another church member. Remember these distinctives. When you talk to your brothers and sisters, unity of mind, sympathy, tenderheartedness, humility, and let it all arise. Let it all be centered on what's most important, love. Pray the Lord will grow these characteristics in you, and let's also pray that our church will be marked by these very qualities. In verse 9, Peter gives instructions on how we act toward outsiders. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. It's understood by most that the Old Testament taught that revenge, vengeance, is of the Lord's. That's God's job. So Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How about Proverbs 20, 22? Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. But what's amazing in the New Testament in light of what Christ has done is followers of Jesus are called to go beyond simply withholding vengeance and revenge. It says, but on the contrary, bless, bless, for to this you are called. So think with me carefully. What exactly is Peter saying we are called to do? And what does blessing our enemies actually mean? How do we do it? I think Peter was recalling Jesus' most fundamental and famous teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, which we did a sermon series on sometime last year, you can reference. But if you recall, as one theologian says, the Beatitudes are the beautiful attitudes of those who are called the children of God. It is the characteristic of the citizens of Christ's kingdom. It is the quintessential qualities of the Christian. And Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 48, it's a long passage, but let me read it for you. It says this, You've heard it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let's be honest, these words may seem daunting or overwhelming to us, but we must remember that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes were representative of Jesus and His life. It was showing us the extent of His love and His compassion and His humility toward us, for us. We need to remember we were the enemies of God, Yet Romans 5.10 says, While we were yet enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Peter was recalling to believers, This is the life to which you have been called to bless, to bless, to bless others, to obtain a blessing. Now, understand me clearly, this is not a call to works righteousness, to legalism or moralism. This is not prosperity theology. You do this for God and He does this for you. No, in fact, it is a holy calling to which we have been called by the grace of God to be who we are because of who He is and what He has done on our behalf. This is the blessed power and assurance gifted to us by God in our salvation. The capacity, the ability, the posture, the heart of blessing. To be truly happy, to extend it to others, grace and mercy when they don't deserve it. Because we know we ourselves didn't deserve it also from God. We know what we are giving away are not ours in the first place. And because we know to bless others is a way to experience God's blessing more fully ourselves. Now, what do I mean by that? What does Peter mean by that? That we ought to bless others in order to obtain a blessing. 
Peter gives us an Old Testament example, quoting Psalm 34, verses 12 through 15. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, Peter has already quoted Psalm 34 back in 1 Peter 2.3. He is very intentional in reminding elect exiles in his day the fact that God has been in the business of redemption and rescue always. Psalm 34, 17 through 19. Can you just actually flip back to Psalm 34? It's on page 463 and 464 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18, and it says this. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This has certainly been the personal experience of King David. Through many trials and dangers, the Lord has delivered him out from the hand of lions and wolves and other predators when he was a shepherd boy, from the grip of Goliath, from the hands of King Saul and many others who attempted to kill him. But the Lord heard David's cries and rescued him from them all. Now hold the thought, because I think there's more there in why Peter continues to refer to Psalm 34. Again, keep a finger, keep a bookmark there. We're going to turn back, but for now, turn back to 1 Peter 3. I love how 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, quoting from Psalm 34, 12, reminds persecuted Christian in suffering of the true hope that we can cling to in the present and not merely for later. I know Pastor Jeremy, summarizing Christian life generally often says, and it's very true, suffering now, glory later. Our brother John McKinney was telling us, yeah, it's true. Christianity is not a, a bed of roses. That is true. But I think for the Christian... Yes, although fullness of our glorious salvation will be received and experienced fully later, 1 Peter speaks of this reality multiple times with, that, with the phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or when Christ returns several times all throughout 1 Peter. But look with me to verse 10. The Christian life isn't all drudgery and suffering in the present and misery in the present. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days... What? What? What is this talking about? As a Christian, brothers and sisters, embracing suffering and blessing others does not mean hating this life and going through bad days only. Christians ought to be people who love life. We ought to be people who see good days and and good things in all things. That we are a people who can live a blessed life, a happy life in the present, amidst suffering and pain and trials all the more, even more so because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Brothers and sisters, we are living in one of the most unusually difficult and divided time in recent human history, but the truth is there have been more worse days, and Scripture tells us things will get more worse. We will experience harsher things in the days to come, but Scripture is also telling us we don't have to live miserably. First Peter is reminding us even as elect exiles, we can be a blessing in the world that we live in, that we can love life and see good days. Now, everyone has so many reasons 
to be anxious and depressed and stressed and fearful these days. Scripture doesn't undermine the struggle and the reality of any of that. If you are struggling here, in fact, with anxiety and depression, we are praying for you. Continue to lean on this body for encouragement and help. But have you considered, in Christ, happiness is a tangible, present reality? Unspeakable, exceeding joy is in your grasp? John 16, 22, write this down. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus was talking about his resurrection in that verse, and the joy of salvation that will come by the Holy Spirit, which will sustain us to the end. And he says again, no one, no one will take that joy from you. So many people, speaking of Christian suffering these days, but be reminded of the joy that comes hand in hand with suffering. While you are embracing suffering and responding to suffering, remember that the joy of the Lord is with you and in you. In his message, Joy in Sorrow, John Piper says, you can't stop, you can't stop pain and tears from coming, but you can keep joy from going. Don't let it stop with you. For the true Christian, the joy of Christ in you will carry you to glory. This is the blessing of good suffering. Verses 13 through 14 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Jesus says, in other words, John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Take heart. Take heart. For I have overcome this world. Amen? So, dear brothers and sisters, I wanted to say this to you as I prepare this sermon. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. The Spirit of the Lord, if you are a Christian, is in you. May the joy of the Lord fill you up, sustain you, and persevere you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you hope and peace. We are in this together. You are not alone. If God is for us, who can be against us? Have no fear and be not troubled because Christ is with you. Amen? And we are for one another. That's point number one. Point number two, why should Christians be good sufferers? The testimony of good suffering. The testimony of good suffering. Verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15 again. It says this. Peter, instead of having fear and being troubled, he says, do this. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter again addresses the inward state In your hearts, honor Christ. It reminds us of Proverbs 4.23, which says, What is in your hearts is what will be reflected on the outside. So it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. What is in your hearts will flow out of you. So, honor Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy. And Peter says, We do that by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We know this verse is often used to teach Christians to be ready to give an apologetic verbally, but we see that in the context of this verse, Peter is more talking about the outward witness or the testimony of a holy life. A person who trusts in Christ the Lord in his heart lives it out before others. What's inside naturally flows out. 
In other words, when we experience fiery trials of various kinds, there is no better witness to trust in Christ's finished work, no better trust in his substitute life and substitute death than us living happy, joyful lives before others. And of course, we can do this. We can do this because we are so blessed to have the Holy Spirit our helper and very present help in time of need. We have access to God in Christ to carry our burdens to Him in prayer. We have a cloud of witnesses. We have covenanted together to carry us when we are weak and discouraged. The people of this world don't have that. The person who does not know Jesus is under the weight of God's wrath and judgment. Their earthly joy is temporary. Their earthly comforts are fleeting. Their best life is now and not later, you see. Our inheritance... Our confidence is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We, by God's power, are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. Peter says at the end of verse 15, yet we do this with gentleness and respect. We don't have to say to non-Christians who don't know salvation in Christ, what's wrong with you? Why are you harming me? Why are you bothering me? Why are you persecuting me? We know better than you. No, we don't have to say that. We live our quiet, meek lives with gentleness and respect. So many Christians on Twitter would be disqualified right now if we ourselves were the standard. Well, praise the Lord. It's not us who are the standard. It's Jesus who is our standard. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our sure, guaranteed confidence. Therefore, we imitate him. We follow in his footsteps. Look at verse 16. It says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, our relationship with Christ means we can withstand some blows that come our way. That's what having a good conscience means. We have been healed. We have been redeemed. We have confidence in Christ. We have peace with God because of Christ. So when we are slandered, When we are reviled, we don't retaliate. We don't have to. We don't need to. We're good. We know Christ is the righteous judge of all things. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to be defensive because in the end, we and they will stand before Christ at the end of days and everyone will be judged according to their deeds. We know that. And those who do not have a good conscience, those who do not know Jesus, those who don't know his peace and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension, they will be put to shame. Look with me to verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Think with me on that verse, that first phrase in particular for a second. For it is better, for it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is a very important phrase you should pause and reflect on. For it is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Because let me tell you, the way you understand this phrase and live it out accordingly will testify of what is in you. It will testify of who you are on the inside. So let me ask you some examining questions. Do you truly believe it is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil? Do you truly believe it is better to stand for God's truth than to compromise on it? Do you truly believe it's better to read the Bible for 30 minutes than watching hours on end, YouTube and Netflix and sports? 
Do you truly believe it is better to pray an hour before work for your soul and for the souls of others than to spend the whole day working for money that perishes? Do you truly believe it is better to pursue peace if it means speaking truth and love at the risk of your clean, nice reputation? Do you truly believe it's better to pursue purity when no one else is watching than participate in evil, sinful desires? Do you truly believe it's better to suffer loss because you know you are doing right according to God's word rather than following your comforts and pleasures and doing what's easy? Examine your heart this afternoon with me. The way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you are hospitable and helpful to others, the way you extend grace, mercy, and love, what does it indicate about who your true God is? What does it testify of you on the inside? This is why a local church ought to be a safe place for discipleship, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. I want to ask you personally, do you have relationships within this church body whom you have placed yourself in a place to be corrected and challenged and encouraged? How can New Covenant Baptist Church be a beacon of the gospel in this city, in this county? How can we as a church testify of Christ? The Bible isn't talking about doing all these crazy things to change the world. But one of the main ways to be a good testimony of the gospel, you know how? To suffer well together. To love well together. So, brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged in suffering well together. Let's pray for one another fervently. Serve and love each other wholeheartedly. Sacrifice for one another selflessly. They will know who Jesus is by our love for one another. Finally, the question remains, why? Why is it better to suffer for doing good than doing evil? Because the question in our minds, in our hearts, in our actual lives is, is it really? Do we really believe that? Shouldn't I maximize my life to make the most money possible, to have the most fun possible, to experience every possible creature comfort before I die? Isn't that the rationale? That's point three. Christians suffer well because, point number three, the victory of good suffering, verses 18 through 22. Now look with me to those verses. I'm going to read it very slowly because many of you asked lots of questions on these verses. For, here's the reason, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. All right? If you read this text or if you went to community group this week, these verses might have been where you said, what in the world is Peter saying? Well, let me just say from the outset, you are in good company. These verses have stumped thousands of theologians and Bible scholars for basically all of Christian history. I've consulted at least, at least, Seven commentaries on these verses, and they all quote the same quote from reformer Martin Luther, who said of these verses these words, 
A wonderful text is this, in a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. I also will not attempt to give a concrete, definitive answer to what theologians and scholars have been debating for centuries, but the main debate about these verses revolve around four questions. You probably talked about these questions in community group. Where did Jesus go? Who are the spirits in prison? What is their prison? What did Jesus say to them? Where did Jesus go? Who are the spirits in prison? What is their prison? What did Jesus say to them? Now, before you get all excited about me answering these questions, (laughs) I told some of you at CG and EMP, early morning prayer, that I actually spent an entire class last year exegeting these verses. That was my assignment. But instead of presenting you all the technical research and numerous different perspectives regarding these verses, and if you come to me with specific intelligent questions about the passage, I'll be happy to talk to you more about it offline. But what I want to do in our time together is draw out for you the main point of these verses in light of the context. I want to present to you the point of the passage. Here is the thrust of the passage, okay? Listen well. Christians can suffer well Because we have the fellowship of brothers and sisters who are united to us, who are sympathetic to us, who love us, and we are united. Okay, And so we can be a blessing to those who revile us because that is what we've been called to, a blessed life. That's verses 8 and 9. And then Peter gives us an example from the Old Testament of David who believed in this and lived this out in his life, looking forward to the promise of the Messiah and the redemption he had in him. And the confidence David had in the coming Messiah, that's verses 10 through 13, showing us this has always been God's way to call, sustain, and persevere his people in faith. Inside, outside, example, and model. Now, in verses 15 through 17, Peter follows a similar pattern, inward, outward, and in verses 18 through 22, a New Testament example and a model of why we persecuted, suffering, elect exiles can suffer so well. Why? Because of Christ himself. Christ also did this, but there is so much more. He is not only a model and an example like David was. Jesus made a way for us. Hallelujah. Three phrases should be kept in focus in these difficult verses. Two in verse 18 and one in verse 22. In verse 18... Being put to death in the flesh. The second phrase there, made alive in the spirit. And in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So simply, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So these concluding words of Peter for this section, the reason why Christians can submit to all human authorities, why slaves can submit to masters, even unjust rulers, why wives can submit to even unbelieving ones, why husbands live with wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel, is all for the purpose of pointing to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, to Jesus' final victory. Turn back to Psalm 34. Page 464, verse 20, in the middle of David's psalm about how in days of his distress, God will deliver him. What is this verse about? Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them 
is broken. This verse is later quoted in the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, verse 36, which says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. You see, brothers and sisters, a thousand years before Christ was even born, David penned these words of Psalm 34, inspired by God. A messianic prophecy about how Jesus would be our rescuer, how he would be our redeemer, how he would be our refuge. Jesus is the hope that David clung to. Jesus is the reason David loved life and saw good days in the midst of a hostile world. And Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is still the reason for us, for all of us who have been born again to a living hope, to suffer well today in this life for his glory. Amen? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who is truly God and truly man, suffered once for sins, sins of all mankind, sins of the past, present, and future, the sin of our rebellion, which separated us from God, the sin of our ongoing distrust in God's word, which acquired us for us righteous judgment for our disobedience. But God, you see, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people from our sins, to restore a right relationship with him that we may come to know who he is, God of all gods, king of all kings, Lord of all lords, whose love and power and grace and mercy is infinite. He sent Jesus, the righteous one, to take on flesh for the unrighteous, that is us, to exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness that he might bring us to God. He did this by becoming our substitute on the cross, being put to death in the flesh, dying the death that we should have died, satisfying the wrath of God reserved for sinners, canceling the judgment of eternal condemnation we would have suffered in eternal hell. But on the third day, Jesus rose again, made alive in the spirit by God. And what did that mean? It meant Jesus proclaimed victory over all death, over all sin, over all rulers, over authorities of the unseen world against cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 6.12. That's what Peter means in verse 19 when he refers to the spirits in prison, forces of Satan and his demonic armies reigning on earth, referenced in Genesis 6, were finally put on a leash. They were the powers in the days of Noah responsible for the judgment in his day. No, Jesus didn't go to hell to proclaim victory. Jesus went to the cross. There is no second chance for people who are in hell. There is only his sovereign election. Hallelujah. That's why as God's patience waited in Noah's day, he is patient towards sinners today through our suffering, in our longing, in our waiting, in our faithful trusting. He is saving and sanctifying his people to the only way, Jesus, toward our eternal home. Just as a few, eight persons, were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment because Christ suffered the judgment of God's wrath on the cross on our behalf. We too, the elect exile, the chosen few of God, will be brought safely home. Amen? Look at verse 21. It says, Baptism... All right, get ready. Which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, as an appeal to God for our good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Get it correctly. Baptism doesn't save anyone. 
A religious ritual can't save anyone. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism, which symbolizes this. This meaning Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not like taking a shower, removing the outer dirt from the body. No, Jesus' finished work on the cross cleanses the inside, changes the inside, transforms the inner man. Baptism, the outward profession of an inward confession, what we believe, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It is a sinner coming to grips with his own sin by God's grace It's understanding salvation that is impossible apart from Christ through faith. It's a humble acknowledgement of our need for Christ, His Word, and His church. This is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. New heart, new mind, new hope, new life, new home. So happy Resurrection Sunday. No, I'm not a week early. We Christians don't just celebrate Resurrection Sunday on Easter Sunday next week. We celebrate Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. Amen? Brothers and sisters, why should we suffer well? Look at verse 22. Who, Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We can suffer well here on earth. We can live life and and see good days. We can even subject ourselves to all human authorities, contrary to what the world, the culture, the society may think or say or ridicule us about what we believe and hold to be truth, because ultimately we are a people who know the victory of Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign ruler over all things who sits at the right hand of God with all things subjected to him. All angels, all authorities, all powers, all presidents, all dictators, all under his control. He's got the whole world in his hand. Friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I want to ask you, do you know this righteous one, this promised one, this glorious one who reigns and rules over all today? This one who has patience and compassion toward you? who has the power to redeem your soul from your sins and from the wrath of God's judgment to come this moment, don't delay. Don't hesitate. Repent of your sins this afternoon. Believe Jesus died, rose, and ascended to heaven for you. Trust him with your whole life today. Let this be the day. If you want to talk more about how you can follow Jesus, I'll be standing at the close of service at the back door, Pastor Jeremy and the outside door. And John, our service leader, in this door, and we don't say this as a weekly routine thing, we want to encourage you and help you know Jesus and follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, suffering now, glory later, true, but also happy in Jesus now, today, tomorrow, and forevermore, no matter what comes our way. Amen? Happy in Jesus now and forever because of what Christ has done for us. So let's be good sufferers because we live a blessed life. We have a testimony to proclaim. And because we know the end, we have resurrection power today and victory in Christ right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have a blessed life to live. We have a glorious gospel to proclaim. And we have the victory a guaranteed, assured victory. We know the end. 
Yes, it's true. In this life, there will be suffering. There will be tribulation. But that's not the end of the story, is it? We know you have overcome the world. Help brothers and sisters in this body to take courage and be happy in Jesus today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Build your church up, we pray. Father, in the midst of so many divisions and so many things that are causing anxiety and stress, Father, may Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, recipients of your glorious gospel, stand boldly, stand faithfully, stand joyfully, proclaiming your truth, standing up to love and care for others as you have called us to. Help us to live the blessed life, we pray. In Jesus' name.